This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Did you see the gathering of women on the streets who were making their own Molotov cocktails with the YouTube on their phone teaching them how to do it? That's just raw and real. It's almost like the trauma for some people of COVID has very, very quickly been completely translated into a much more terrifying trauma, really, of the possibility of nuclear war. The power of real-time reporting, there is nothing like it. It was one of the more scary departures from anywhere that I have ever experienced. The drive to Ballina was in the most torrential rain I think I've ever driven in, probably got out just in time. There is nothing like fish and tomato. Oh, Isn't it the perfect combo? And something about the tomato is absolutely beautiful. And my warning to readers would be, treat each chapter as a short story. Don't get too involved about who's who in the zoo. Just go with the flow because there are so many characters. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 207 of Don't Shoot the Messenger I'm Caroline Wilson and I'm joined today, as I am every week, in person again, which is a great novelty for me, by Corrie Perkin. Hello, Corrie. Oh, hello, Caro. I've um, I've got a very squeaky chair. Can you hear it? I'm a bit... <laughs> oh, oh, Janie, I promise I'll, I won't move for the rest of the podcast. I will just sit here quietly. Oh, no, Jane's getting me another chair. Is there no end to this woman's servile talents? Thank what you, about, Jane. What about those unbelievable roses that she's oh. brought in today from her country garden. Um, I suppose we, we should all be planting sunflowers at the moment in memory of um, the good folk of Ukraine. We'll talk about that in a moment, but um, they are beautiful flowers, Jane, but no, your roses are absolutely brilliant. Are they David Austin's? I've got no idea. There's there are just a couple. Joey. Yeah, there are a there's couple of Joey's and then there's another. Oh, and a couple of modern standard ones. But I, Jane and I were having a chat before you arrived about uh, the mysteries of black spot. Which is uh, is a nightmare for all rose growers. And just remember, everybody, strip every single leaf off and don't throw it on the ground. Don't throw it back into the soil. Put it into a bag and put it in your compost. No, don't put it in your compost. Put it in your rubbish bin. Okay, rubbish bin. Because it'll, then you'll just put it oh, back yes, on the Oh, yes, of course garden. you will. You but can tell I don't have I've never had a compost in my life. Oh, I'm, I'm I, just, a, I was just being sort of very I'm kind of 21st century I'm a big composter, as you know these yes. days. No, you don't want to do that because you'll re-poison the soil. But, yes, get rid of your black spot. And, um, and gents, or get you know, get in early, get in ahead, and plant parsley underneath your roses. An old Jenny Smith tip. Oh yes, and nasturtiums. And really, well, uh, that's fruit trees, I think. No, nasturtiums. Um, they they you plant them in roses. You plant you plant roses and nasturtiums because they're companion plants, and that's why in every vineyard, clever a clever um, wine makers know this that you have a, ro- a standard rose or a, or a climbing rose and nasturtiums at the end, end of each row, you know, to keep all the bugs away. Well, that's well, that also, I'm sure it does, and fruit trees. We need a gardening think, hour here. <laughs> but I think parsley as well. Anyway, um, look, lots of lovely feedback today. I just want to mention Jane Lubinus, our wonderful footy-tipping champ, who I, I did not realise, Corrie, or maybe I did realise this. Here's the daughter of John Holt. John Holt was the president of the Geelong Football Club when I started covering football. So it would have, given that you were ahead of me, he would have been there with you as well. He died just before Christmas. And um, 
dad actually, my father, Ian, went to his funeral and I remember him saying to me, oh, look, I, I think I'm going to go to John Holt's funeral. You know, we were presidents together and I liked him. I haven't seen him for a few years. And he went along. Well, Jane, um, dad told me this too, but one of Jane's brothers um, approached him um, at the end of the service. And um, Oh, your dad. Yeah, your dad, dad approached the approached brother. Them yeah. And... and um, and they had a lovely chat. And I remember Dad telling me about this, about um, just footy days of the 80s and reflections on good times, etc. And Jane um, appreciated Dad making the trip down the highway. So um, I will pass that on, Jane, and Vale John Holt. Corrie, um, what about the shady lady fight? Well, the shady ladies. <laughs> the shady Who ladies. are the shady ladies? They seem to know you. Yeah, Corey, you know mean, them does very that mean well. Does that mean you're shady um, too? They have a fundraising lunch every year um, to fight motor neurone disease. And among them, among their brethren or sorority, I probably should say, is Jan Danaher, um, wife of Neil, and Claire McClarty, um, one of the great fundraising network from one of the great fundraising networking families in this city, Martine Oldfield and Helen Otto. They run this lunch every year. We'll give you some more details, um, but it's going to be held on April 1. Um, more details to come. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out at the end of this lovely note that one of the gang has sent you, Cara, they've gone, FYI, FYI I hope you'll be pleased to know that I moved house last year and switched to Red Energy. At the same time, thought I'd switch my mum's gas and electricity to red energy as well. So there you go, another couple of customers. It's amazing, of the podcast. isn't it? It's unbelievable. Don't say we don't have any power in Melbourne. Well, I'm I'm impressed. I'm impressed, and I'm and I'm even more impressed that they're happy. Now, Corrie, last week I spoke for you from what was beautiful sunny Yamba in northern New South Wales. I'm back. I haven't been back 24 hours, and I have to say it was one of the one of the more scary departures from anywhere that I have ever experienced. As we know, northern New South Wales and southern Queensland are undergoing some of the worst floods. I think they're saying worse in worst in 60 years. The rain set in on Saturday night. There'd been a bit of rain the previous couple of days, a couple of downpours, but, you know, that lovely humidity, you swim in the rain, etc. Water goes a bit brown, bit of a worry. Suddenly the flood warnings came in on Saturday night and Clem and I drove out early on Sunday morning. It was um, the drive to Ballina was in the most torrential rain I think I've ever driven in, certainly for over an hour. The Clarence River, the mighty Clarence, was bursting at the seams as we drove out of Yamba. I think we probably got out just in time before a lot of people would have been actually stranded in the town, which would have been fine if you lived there, but not if you're trying to get to the airport. We got on one of the last flights. There were flights being cancelled left, right and centre. And looking at the news this morning, it, it is actually quite terrifying. Yamba, as you know, the nearest two big towns are probably Grafton and Lismore. And Lismore. Yes. Well, as we record this, it's Monday morning and uh, we just send all our all our love to everybody who's been affected in that area of northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. But um, Caro, driving to the podcast this morning, I was listening to some extraordinary live cross via ABC radio to uh, a Lismore resident who said, the water is uh, at our feet. And then within 30 seconds, she said, oh, there goes the fridge. So I imagine the fridge has just sort of floated and lifted. And she said, our neighbours are on the roof. Oh, I have to go. We have to get on the roof. So it's very dramatic. And it just reminds us, which is something we're going to talk about in a minute, the power of 
uh, real-time reporting. There is nothing like it. It's just, I mean, we've been gripped by what's been happening in Ukraine in the last week. I can't turn the television off there. And, of course, to wake up this morning and hear these terrible stories of loss of life and um, and to actually hear it in real time as, as rivers are breaking their banks and towns are being flooded. Yeah, as we speak, I think it's um, six the death toll has risen to um, in southern Queensland. But uh, it was a fascinating experience going back to Yamba after a year. And the first time I think I went there was 2016 or 2017. And even in that short time, and as you know, um, other members of my family, my sister's been holidaying there for over a decade and absolutely loves it, well over a decade, probably 15, 16 years. Gee, the um, Aussie coastal town is not what it used to be. They're just as beautiful, but COVID has meant that basically people have gone to live in these places just for a different experience or they've stayed in their coastal towns rather than live in the city because of COVID. And it's it's almost like... Um, a microcosm of Byron Bay, which, you know, the story is about the subclass, now the underclass of Byron Bay, people who have been living there for decades, 40 years, and always rented because they never brought their own home and bought their own home and assumed they would live there forever. Now, because of their jobs, living in their cars, living in caravan parks, living on campsites, having to move to other regions. And if they can't afford to move jobs, as I said, living in the back of their vans, etc., and Yamba hasn't got to that point, but it was something I experienced in, Yamst- in in Amsterdam as well. The locals are finding it harder and harder to afford to live in Amsterdam. The locals in Yamba are finding it hard, harder and harder to keep these little businesses. So there's no real... My fear with this discovery, and, and Conde Nast voted it the best holiday destination, coastal destination in oh, Australia, which was... I bet you're cursing them for unfortunate. that. <laughs> Look, it's a beautiful, beautiful holiday town. It's like a country town by the sea, but it used to be a place where really just country New South Welsh men and women would go for their holidays. Yeah. And, it's, and now it's, you know, there's the hidden, the, the little tiny, um, our dear friend Emma Strauss goes up there every year to do business. And she had a gorgeous little tiny guest house that she used to stay in or, or apartment. Well, that's been taken over by someone who's going to schmick it all up. And there's a lot of very groovy new places emerging. And these wonderful little secret holiday destinations just don't seem to sort of be there anymore. And as more and more people from around the country go, well, this is a nice place to live and it's relatively reasonable, I'm going to go here. You know, almost there goes the neighbourhood. Good people are moving there and it's wonderful, but it's harder and harder for these local businesses to survive and the bigger ones are moving in. And somewhere along the line, the charm is lost. Well... You're absolutely right. If you think about the coastal towns of our, the beach places of our, our youth and our era and our contemporaries, families who used to holiday at Torquay and Janjuk and, and Anglesey and um, Ocean Grove and over the other side. Mogs uh, Creek. Yeah, and Mount, Mount Martha, um, Mount Eliza. I had a friend at school who they, their family actually had a holiday house in Aspendale, even though they lived in North Brighton, but they would go down there because it was right on the beach. Um, and over the years, these places have now really become satellite suburbs, if not of Melbourne, certainly satellite suburbs of big regional cities. So what's happened also, Caro, apart from COVID, 
is um, if we go back a little bit, if you think about all of the um, departments of public service, of government, departments of government and even uh, big corporations that have decided to outsource either a division of their organisation or indeed in some cases their entire organisation, they've sent it to Ballarat or Geelong or Frankston or Warrnambool. You know, there, there's a big population of people who work now in Warrnambool who have come down come down from Melbourne who live in Warrnambool and they've decided to buy in Port Ferry because it's beautiful. Port Ferry prices are going through the roof. So, of course, developers come and the prices of Main Street just go through the roof. And the other sad thing, and you and I have commented about this uh, for example, Sorrento Main Street, not so much Queenscliff, it's resisted, but over the other side of the rip at Sorrento, all of the, so many of the little bespoke traders, and I don't mean that in a diminishing way, I mean people, mum and dad businesses, mum and pop businesses, uh, the local bakeries, the the gift shops, the, the, the just lovely bespoke businesses, um, they can no longer afford their rents. So big, big uh, organisations, you know, like multinationals, like Mecca. Mecca's coming to Sorrento Main Street. Mimco. And what witchery. And it's not that we don't don't love these shops. You know, I, and hey, I love nothing more than going into the CBD and shopping at those shops. But when you're down at a coastal town, sometimes you just want something that's a bit more local oriented. Point and of difference. Point of difference and, and run by the people who actually live there. Rileys and, and the, stringers. Yeah. And, yeah, All look, of that. It, it, um, Yamba to me is still just as beautiful as, I mean, it's a stunning place and it's just as beautiful as ever. But you talk to some of the locals and they're the ones who really feel it. And I think it's just something, I don't really know what you can do about it. People have just wised up that these are great places to live. And also Australians, Kara, so many Australians are not travelling internationally. Well, obviously we haven't for the past two years, but I don't know about your gang, but I, I just hear from, from the kids' friends and from my friends, so many people are resistant to travel this year or even next year internationally. So there's no kind of let's go to Bali for a holiday or let's go to Italy. It's it's like, okay, so we're on the coast of east coast of Australia or somewhere in WA, where can we go for a holiday? One place we won't be going is Russia or anywhere in Eastern Europe, I would imagine. Yeah. This is, um, it, it's almost like um, the trauma for some people of COVID has very, very quickly been completely translated into a much more terrifying trauma, really, of the possibility of nuclear war. Um, it's just, it just happened so quickly. Even though this threat has been coming for months now, Corrie, I just didn't actually think Putin would invade the Ukraine. I just didn't think it was going to happen. I suppose everyone has had their say on this and we're not war correspondents. Personally, it's not an ambition I ever had. No, no, I was, uh, I, it was never one I wanted to. Although interesting, when when you and I talked about that yesterday, would, did you ever want to be a war correspondent? What I always wanted to be was in the newsroom at a time of, of, of war, which um I was kind of lucky enough in a in a small way uh, when the sun when we were at the Sunday Age Carol and the Gulf War the first the first Gulf War under oh, sorry under first George, I remember George I was Bush there President. with you yeah yeah and and CNN had just come to the fore and we had television on in the newsroom and and even though we were a weekly newspaper uh, as we headed toward the back end of the week it was all hands on deck covering that and I remember 
quite, you know, there's an adrenaline pumping situation. First of all, it's the men and women on the ground, your staff and the correspondents you're worried about. And then it's how do we, how do we make sure they're safe, secure? Okay, so what are they reporting and where does, you know, where does that go in the paper? What's the scheme of the things? Where, you know, is it a feature story? Is it a front page? You know, and when news is moving so quickly, the front page changes. I mean, just this morning, Caro, to wake up and read Putin orders nuclear deterrent forces to be on high alert as tensions build over Ukraine. And then the next report is Belarus is likely to jump into the fray. So it, this is such a moving story. And I don't want to... Um, and I'm, they're actually I'm, talking at the border too, which is, which is a, an, another changing... Um, interesting you mentioned the Gulf War. Did you read that story the other day that maybe Bob Hawke's version of events wasn't quite what happened? And, I did not read that. Oh, it's a, it's a new book out. I think um, there was a piece in The Australian that had an exclusive excerpt that he and George Bush did a deal that... Um, George Bush said, yeah, I'll say I called you, but in fact you called me and offered Australia services. Yeah, it's um, the headline was Hawk Lied about golf. Work. Oh, I didn't read that. Okay, well, I was just but, probably too busy doing code words in the age to or, or Wordle, which I've now put Miss Jane onto. But look, I don't want to diminish um, the, the, what's happening in Ukraine by sort of focusing on the news story itself and how kind of fascinated I am by that. This is just probably the most terrified, certainly our children who have been in their lifetime, and it would be up there for you and I with um, 9-11 and the Gulf War. I remember when the Gulf War first started unfolding, it was absolutely... Yeah, I I didn't feel that fear with the Gulf War. This is different to me. I, I can't quite explain it. I agree with Australia's political leaders who were saying don't start getting worried, touchy about China, like don't draw the obvious conclusions. And there are a lot of parallels with China and Taiwan, clearly. Um, what else is clear is that, you know, which we've known, I suppose, we've known for a decade, but America is not the superpower it was at the start of this century. And things have changed so much since the Berlin Wall came down and, you know, America sort of did seem at that point to be by far the most powerful nation in the world. You know, China seems to have clearly taken over there. But in terms of Russia and Ukraine, the one thing, well, obviously the Ukrainians in Australia and their stories I've found incredibly moving. But what else is the most interesting thing as we sit here on Monday morning is that it's not exactly a doddle for the Russians. The Ukrainians (laughs) are are, are putting up an an unbelievable fight. An unbelievable fight. And I think that's... And this is not not necessarily going to be the easy victory, I think, that we all felt it would be for the Russians. Absolutely not. Well, the the economy, you know, every World Bank, every stream of money now is closing up um, before Putin's eyes and his oligarchs. They're going to be in huge trouble. And um, the the ruple has plunged 30%, I gather. Um, There are $630 billion of Russian money in European um, banks. That's uh, $630 million US. And um, they can't get access to it. So... How on earth are they going to get through the, the, that economic crisis? A couple of things, Caro, I think are really interesting about this particular conflict. One is um, the speed with which events unfolded over the past week or so. What I found really interesting is that, uh, that it has been very clear, very apparent, and it's been on message. All of the European countries have been on message about this is Putin's, this is Putin. This, this was a peaceful nation and he's overstepped the mark. The second thing is the power of social media. How incredible is to tell the stories on the streets and the battlefields, the way uh, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter has been able to, has been profound. This is a moment-changing 
uh, time in the history of media. Everyday citizens on their iPhones posting footage of Russian tanks arriving. That, did you see the gathering of women on the streets who were making their own Molotov cocktails with the YouTube on their phone, teaching them how to do it? Like that's just raw and real. And you're watching this going, I would actually be doing exactly the same if my home and my family were at stake in my country. And the third thing that's just working in their favour at the moment, and um, we just hope he stays safe, is the charismatic and brave leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, is that how I pronounce it, Um, who came to office in May 2019 with about 73% of the vote. Think of him as the Ukraine's Steve Vizard Caro. So this guy went um, studied law. He was born in 1978. Dare I say that was the year I did um, matric, <laughs> year 12. Um, but he has a law degree and then he pursued comedy and he set up his own production company. So a bit like Steve Vizard, you know, that. so that same sort of business acumen and legal brain and just obviously a terrific mimic and a wonderful um, actor. And he, his production company produced a number of different products, films, cartoon shows, and this TV show, which was hugely popular, called Servant of the People, in which Zelensky played the role of a Ukraine president. And then lo and behold, heading toward the 2019 election, he decides to put his hand up and say, you know what, I might actually throw my hat in the ring here. And he gets 73.2% of the vote. And he established a platform. He came in on a platform of anti-corruption um, and... Um, very determined to eliminate Ukraine of its oligarchs. And um, he is, he's just become the kind of the people's prince. And uh, what, a, what extraordinary footage he is posting from the streets of Ukraine when the rumour, the Russians tried to spread the rumour that he had left and run away like a coward. He immediately got on Instagram and started posting outside significant Ukrainian buildings. So he seems to wow. have, I mean, uh, th- there's so much more at stake for the Ukrainians and, and the people who are fighting, including their, their army and, and their, natu- their their new army that, as you say, has just emerged, whether it's in their houses or wherever or are coming back into the place. I mean, if you're a, if you're a male Ukrainian over 60, you can leave, but if you're between 18 and 60, you can't. It, it is pretty scary. But they, they've got a lot more to fight for, I think, than the Russian soldiers who are being told to do this. And you know, obviously a lot of them believe in what Putin is doing, but but clearly not in the way the Ukrainians do. They seem to have the passion and obviously they've got a lot more to fight for. So, yeah, watch this rather scary this space. space. And and some great reporting, Caro. Again, I just urge potties, if you, if you haven't subscribed to the New York Times, The Daily, every day they post and um, they have had their correspondence on the ground in Kiev and different parts of Ukraine and indeed Moscow as well, reporting in each day. It is utterly fascinating and absorbing. AB, the ABC here in Australia is doing an outstanding job. Al Jazeera is... is just running amazing personal stories like they had one a couple of days ago about all of these Nigerian medical students who'd been studying in Kiev and they're stuck there. But it was a real sort of human drama, a great story. The Age are doing a great job. Um, so stick to your news sources, everyone, and, um, you know, watch this space. And, gosh, I just hope that there is some peaceful outcome, as peaceful as it can be, in the next uh, 24, 48 hours. 
So as we know, Corrie, um, we switch very quickly from a major international world crisis into the minutiae of life because that is what keeps us going. And it's the, we need these little life dilemmas. Light and shade, Caro, light and shade. Exactly. Speaking of light and shade, I should go back to that shady ladies lunch we mentioned for Fight MND. Um, the other shady lady is and, and the um, Red Energy fan is actually um, Ruth Hobson who is a, a dear friend of the podcast. Thank and, you, Ruth. And the lunch is being held on Friday, April 1, at the Plaza Ballroom in Collins Street. I think if you Google shady ladies fighting MND, you'll find it. But now it's time to go to the well, Corrie. Dear Caro and Corrie. I love this dilemma, and it brings up a much wider dilemma in my view. And this is um, to do, it, it's gender-based, I guess. Um, please keep it coming. And you can send your questions to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Corrie's friend would like to go, this is the dilemma this week. Corrie, your friend would like to go to England on a walk with a group of women. How does he explain this to his wife, to his male friends and to the women walkers themselves? Now, this is very interesting because we've been, I've been on a walk with my husband, which was great. I've been on a walk with couples, um, several walks in Tasmania with a group of couples, great. And I've been with a group of girls, all great. But I've never actually been on a walk where it's been all men and maybe one woman or all women and one man. I know people who have. So how does our friend, our anonymous friend, resolve this issue? Would, would he be welcome, for example, among the Cornish walkers? Well... Well, my friend's dilemma was how tight was the Cornish walkers? Was it the sort of group that would embrace other people? And I said, well, I don't think we're an exclusive group, but it's just the four of us ha have talked a lot about the next walk and that's probably and the, the way we'll be going. <laughs> Given that we went on a four-day walk, you'd think we'd been to, you know, Antarctica. <laughs> Three weeks or something. People still keep saying to me, no, we need your tips for the Cornish walk. Now, do we need... <laughs> Do we need backpacks? Somebody asked me the other day. I went, oh, no, you just need a very nice hotel to go to. <laughs> um, yes, I know. It's sort of got bigger than, bigger than, bigger than Moses. Um, so, Caro, so this is a, an interesting thing because I think probably we've talked it up so much people want to join. But uh, in fairness to my friend, he and I had been discussing for a long time my long-held ambition of crossing, uh, walking from the coast to coast, so that famous walk from one side of England to the other, so the Irish Sea to the uh, English Channel, and you go, then the, you cross the most narrow part of England, which is roughly around um, Lake Country, in the footsteps of the Ro ancient Romans. Correct. And so, my friend and I have been discussing this for a long time. Would we do it? And his gorgeous wife, lovely wife, who is also a walker, we've never really. Would would my husband go? Would her, Would she go? It hasn't even kind of like let's do a group or a couples thing. We've just both said how much we'd love to do this walk. So we were talking about this walk the other day, and I said, well, actually, it's interesting because the Cornish walkers have. We've been talking about Devon, and there are some really beautiful coastal walks you can do at Devon. And Not my to friend, mention the entire other side of the eastern oh, coast of Cornwall. Well, everywhere. Well, there's so much Northern of Cornwall coast, we haven't. Yeah. But but I said, you know, we've been thinking about this just because the the trip across uh, it, it can take two or three weeks, depending how how which tour you take and how fast you move. And he said, well, I love Devon. I would love to do that. And 
that's how this discussion and this dilemma came about. And he said he would be quite interested to hear what people's or our thoughts were anyway. So I think absolutely if you're a male or a female and you're going on a walk with people from the opposite sex, you've got to clear it with your partner. So the partner partner is fine. So my friend's wife is absolutely fine about that. And she she may or may not want to do this walk too. But then as I said to him, so how do you explain to your bloke friends that you're going on a walk with the Sheilas? That's the easiest bit. The easiest bit is explaining it to the blokes. I mean, I don't think they would care less. Don't you I, think? I think, I think some men might find that an, uh, not an awkward conversation, but I have seen men, I have seen men in a slightly sheepish way say they belong to a book club, although that's a few years ago. Now, interestingly, a lot of men are quite proud of the fact that they're in a book club. Oh, and all male book clubs are all the rage. My brother's in a book club with men and women. Um, our friend Sal Howe, great friend, friend of the podcast, he's in a couples book club. We controversially talked about introducing men to our book club many years ago. Oh, and that went down badly. Fell on very deaf ears. But um, famously, one bloke we know only reads dust covers, according to a friend, but we won't name names. Corrie, this is brings up a wider question of gender. Now, you know, I, I'm in a marriage where I play bridge, Brendan plays golf and it's it's really sad for him that you know we don't get asked on a lot of couples golf trips because I don't play golf and I've always said but I can come along I'll just go to the antique shops or I'll go to the galleries or I'll go on walks and but you know it's not the same it's a it's a couples thing or it's a blokes thing absolutely fine with me but I think we're moving more and more dangerously into gender exclusive territory as we get older and I think we need to fight this mm, so I, I think agree. I think we should include men on the walk. And I think even if it's one man, it's no big deal. I mean, if Brendan said to me, I'm going on a walk with four women, I mean, I would seriously fall over. I would be so surprised because he would... Or you'd be saying you want to go too. Yes, or he would be far more likely to go on a golf trip. And again, absolutely fine. I doubt he would just go on a walk for walking's sake unless I was involved. But I think we need to be more embracing I agree with you. Of blokes in our lives. I agree with you. This conversation was, it was really about how would the Cornish walkers feel about bringing a man into the pack. So we have your vote, so that's great. And we have my vote, so that's two it against would, the other two. Not, by, by very nature, a man is welcome. It would depend on the man, of course. I've said this before to you many times. You know, in Sydney, my sister's got a gang. They, they have this Thirsty Thursday. They all meet at the local pub for a drink, men and women. Our group of I've got a group of friends in Melbourne. The women meet at one place and the men meet at the other. And I'm last year I had these big plans to bring everyone together and, you know, get everyone to one pub, men and women, because then it just includes everyone and there are a lot of women and men who are single who might like to just have the company of the Well, you see that, sex. and you see that's the Why thing. don't we all meet together? Exactly. I don't understand. For, for a brief moment in my life, as you know, I was not a couple. I was a single person. And I forevermore, it changed my, it changed my view on this forevermore, never, ever have Pete and I had couples dinner parties or even thought about couples golf trips, although that seems to be the way it falls. Or have we thought it odd to have You've you been know, on plenty an odd of number. couples golf. Oh, I know I have, but that's that's through the initiation of other people. But the golf tournament that Pete and I run, you know, this this winter 
tournament thing that we have with um, with a gang of friends, we have a number of single men and women in that group. Or, uh, you know, one bloke, his wife doesn't play golf, but he comes and there's a couple of single. So who cares about numbers? That's always been my view. And I'm very welcoming of the idea of having blokes on the on the walk. But it is it is a really interesting dilemma. You're absolutely right when you say as we get older, maybe we're just kind of – I observed this at a dinner on the weekend – chicks up one side of the table and Happens the blokes all the, the time. And I just thought, this is so, so when it came for dinner, I said, come on, we've all got to just mix it, mix it around here. Can we all sit in a different spot? But it's funny how women just gravitate at our age and just like, we can't be bothered anymore with all that. Yeah. And the talk. blokes will say, look, it just saves time. You, blokes <laughs> up, saves time. It'll happen in the end, by the end of the night anyway. Look, I think, um, Corrie, your friend should just put his hat in the ring. And as I said a few weeks ago, there's always room for one more. Well, it might be true because I mean, it'd be lovely to have it'd be lovely to have his missus as well. But he did say, Caro, it, it would be quite nice for him if there was another bloke there. So that was interesting too. I, I won't oh, even well, go down is, that path. Yeah, well, now, now you're expanding <laughs> the issue. As always, at this time, we need a drink, an international drink. And it's that time of the week again for the cocktail cabinet brought to us each week by Prince Wine Store. And speaking of Prince Wine Store, Caro, we have Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store over there, OT, over there in Europe. Gosh, I hope you're in a safe place, Miles. Where are you? I'm actually in, in, in Piedmont at the moment. Just got here this afternoon and came from Burgundy in the Northern Rhone. Oh, so you travelled across that, the mountains? So, yeah, travelled through the through the tunnel and, and into Italy, in the northern part of Italy. Fantastic. P- Piedmont, sort of near Turin. Piedmont, for those who, who are not so familiar with it, is if you go to if you fly into Milan and you go south, so it's basically that area there that borders France. It's a fantastic area. What have you been discovering on your fact-finding mission about <laughs> French and Italian wines that we didn't know? Look, I mean, I, th- I think one of the interesting things here is, you know, they're very conscious of, of climate change and, you know, you hear them talk about it a lot and, and all the different things they're doing in the vineyards and to, to try to sort of deal with the, the changing weather and climate. And, you know, in Burgundy, they talk a lot about, you know, choosing different different types of clones of the Chardonnay grapes and Pinot grapes that they use, particularly Chardonnay, as the seasons change. So they're starting to sort of flower later. They're starting to pick a bit later. The seasons are changing in general sort of terms. So it's very interesting to, to see. They're really all over it as far as that's concerned. So I thought that was a really interesting thing to talk to them a lot about. We talked about some beautiful sparkling wine from other regions other than Champagne in France mm. last week, Miles. Now, yeah, tell the us... The Picamellos, yeah, they're great. Tell us about Burgundy and were the, were the French happy to see you after all this time? Yeah. <laughs> we commented how, um, how friendly and lovely they have been. No, look, they, they, they are too and a lot of them... Uh, most of the producers we'd seen, they'd all said the same thing, that we were the first, literally the first people that they'd seen since COVID a couple of years ago. So like first sort of overseas appointments. Yeah, everyone's really happy to sort of see things open up and have uh, tourists coming back and visitors coming back. Still a lot of places are closed over here. A lot of restaurants and wine bars, partly due to people on holidays, but partly due just to to, uh, you know, lack of people around as well. So interesting to see the, the parallels in other countries. 
Yeah, it, I, I found that interesting too. I mean, it's sort of potluck, isn't it? Going oh, to a restaurant or a, yeah, that's right. Going to a restaurant or a cafe. Just sometimes they're not open, and when they are, it's just absolutely that's wonderful. Right. Any differences between yeah. France and Italy you've noticed so far, or is it too soon? No, look, too soon. We just we just got here this afternoon, so we've just sort of had a chance to lob into our accommodation and go out and hit a couple of wine bars and have a nice bit of dinner. Oh, it's, a, pretty... it's a tough life, but somebody's got to do it. It's a... <laughs> I know. It is a tough life. It's a busy schedule, but it's a lot of fun. It, it sounds wonderful. Have Have you tasted anything that we might be able to buy at Prince Wine Store or seen anything or identified a trend that we should go and look at when we next visit your wonderful store? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, I've been a fan of these wines for a while. It's Jean-Luc and Eric Bergaway. They're the two sons that have taken over the family domain, and Jean-Luc's the winemaker there. They make really... A kind of rustic style Burgundy, very authentic, kind of what like Burgundy, I guess, used to be like. His father used to make them a little bit oaky, but the sons are, I mean, you see this a lot in Burgundy, the trend is to less oak, and that's what they've done as well. So these really lovely sort of pure, fresh style Burgundies. Now, this is their Burgon Rouge, um, so it's a blend of a different bunch of different plots around Burgundy, but mainly around Chevrolet Chambertin, which is where they're based. And it's called the Bergon Rouge La Pinsvan 19. 19 with a nice warm vintage, plenty of fruit, lovely, juicy, but very fresh, spicy sort of style. Really sort of supple, very delicious, just a little bit of oak that you can't sort of really see and really sort of pure and fine. Um, this is probably one of the, the, the better vintages. They seem to just, with that less oak and that sort of, that more pure, fresh style. They really sort of nailed this one in the 19. I, I really like this wine a lot. And we got to try it there at the at the estate too, which was fantastic, as well as 20 and 21 as well. So how much will a bottle of this beautiful Burgundy set us back? Now, this is normally 90, but at the moment it's down to 70. And then I'll set it up so for um, the Don't Shoot the Messenger um, listeners as well, they'll get another 10% off that again. Oh, Wow. Generosity, Miles. Why, that's, why not? That, well, that's a little <laughs> that's a little steep, but I think uh, certainly if, if you were having a very special dinner, or indeed if you knew somebody who loved their red wine, I think that's a wonderful option and also a great backstory too. Hey, Miles, um, I've been enjoying very much the Prince Wine Store Instagram account. I don't know whether any of our messengers are onto this, but it is just. Prince Wine Store, that's all it is. Type it in, into your Instagram account and you can follow Miles and Michael and the team as they make their way around the vineyards of France and Italy. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, it's good. Michael's putting some good stuff up there. So try to get some posters, some good dishes, some tartufo and some nice pasta while we're here. Oh, how wonderful, Miles. Well, look, it's great to talk to you over in Italy. Where are you heading to next? So I think we're here for four days, five days, and then we head over to the Veneto and Verona, um, and then we're down to Tuscany and then then out from Rome. So a terrible, terrible trip ahead. We look forward to hearing all about it in person, (laughs) Miles. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And that was an international cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store. Remember, you can get online at princewinestore.com.au or check out their Instagram page, which Corrie's just mentioned, Prince Wine Store, or you can go to their wonderful South Melbourne store. And thanks to Nancy Ollett, who, um, with her husband, Corrie, completed the Prince Wine Store introductory wine course. 
that she won on our podcast. Yay! She was very, very happy with it. She said it was brilliant, in fact. Tutor mats, so knowledgeable and engaging. Taste buds tantalised. They sampled wines from Europe and Australia. The little asaji tastings that accompanied the wine were delicious. She highly recommends um, the course and says a big thank you. Oh, Cara, I wish we had enough time in our lives to go and do the wine course. Maybe we will one day soon. I'd love to do that. We will. Okay, Corrie, we're going to move on very quickly now to BSF, Book, Screen and Food, brought to us by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe you should call Red Energy, 131806. I'm still on the William Boyd Trail. Brazzaville Beach is my new one, but you've got a new thriller. Brand new February release, although it came out in France. It's, it's, uh, it was originally in French by French writer Hervé Letellier, but it has just recently, February, come out in, um, in Australia um, following an English translation, which I have to say in parts is a little clunky. So you have, if you're reading it, just keep in mind that it's a, tra- it's a translation. Carol, you know I'm not a huge thriller fan, but the, the the buzz around this book was so extraordinary. I had to give it a go, and to be honest, I'm pretty hooked on it. Um, so, so you have to just go with me on an imaginary um, moment here. It's March, and an Air France flight zero zero six leaves Paris for New York, and somewhere over the Atlantic, the plane flies into her- an horrific weather pattern, and the crew and the passengers are terrified. They're convinced this is going to be the end of their life. They eventually come through this weird cloud mass. Um, It's almost like a hurricane. And what's happened while they have been in the clouds is they have been cloned. There has been some extraordinary moment in the universe where a double of the plane, its crew, the passengers, appears. And to make matters trickier, the clone arrives at New York, at JFK, and the original plane, 006, is still flying around and three months later in July calls uh, Kennedy Airport and says, we're ready to land. And they have gone, but who are you? So the, the plane arrives, it's whisked off by NASA, by, you know, the Pentagon, the president's on the line, you can imagine. And these people are hothoused while they are interviewed by the FBI, CIA, every, every spy, MI5, everybody's there. So, the, so that, that in itself is a kind of a, a paranormal sci-fi, where are we going with this? And it could be quite grim and quite exhausting because there's a lot of maths in it too and science, which I'm a bit bored by. But there's a, there's a humour here. There's a satire. It's I've written here, because I just was trying to describe it last night in my own head, sci-fi meets Don't Look Up, which I know you haven't seen, which is the wonderful Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Meryl Streep film. Oh, yeah. Um, no, me- I did end up. I wasn't so mad on it. And meets, anyway. and meets oh, you have seen it, sorry. Yeah. And and then meets the dinner. Do you remember that amazing novel by Herman yep. Koch, the Amsterdam yep. writer? Loved so, it. So because the characters in the plane, who are now there are two of them, their lives are, we, we get into all of their lives and there is a cast of characters and my warning to readers would be treat each chapter as a short story. Don't get too involved about who's who in the zoo. Just go with the flow because there are so many characters. But, you know, what happens to the professional hitman? 
A version of him, B version of him, what happens? What happens to the translator who is just trying to get through life translating works but always wanted to write the great novel, A and B? The rap artist Slim Boy, his career, A and B. It is just, it is really, really clever. It is such a clever setup. And no wonder this book has sold a million copies in uh, in France. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes here. Again, as I said, the translation is a little clunky in parts for me. A lot of the maths and science stuff about what happened as they explain it to the president. Uh, I mean, I think it's a kind of a Donald Trump sort of president. He seems a bit dim, but even I, like, not that I'm not dim, but I was overwhelmed, so I sort of skipped a couple of pages. But it is a really great book uh, and a terrific one if anybody's aiming for a long weekend as it's coming up soon or Easter uh, read. So that's it the, sounds um, the very anomaly. very confusing but very interesting. The Anomaly by Hervé Letellier. Sounds fascinating. Moving right along, Corrie, what have you been watching? Inventing Anna. And Tell so, me and about so is this. Jane. We're addicted. Tell, we? I, I've not seen it. I want to hear. I cannot believe. It, that one it's, for us, Jane. It's like 10 or 11 or 12 hours of your life you'll never get back, but I am so addicted. It's so trashy. So they're film-length <laughs> episodes and there are nine of them, Carol. It's on Netflix. And I've I've just watched one, but uh, the setup is great. You may remember a few years ago the true story of um, of Anna. Well, she goes through different names, but Delvey will call her. There are many different aliases, and um, she was a she was a she arrived in New York and said that she was a German heiress. And she was incredibly well-dressed, really beautiful. And people just sort of fell for her, the it culture, the celebrity culture. They believed every word that she said. And she was a con artist. She was eventually charged with fraud. Friends who had uh, lost so much money from her, hotel bills she never paid. Eventually it all came home to roost. There, in, in real life, um, there was a there is a New York journalist, New York magazine, I mean, not the New Yorker, New York, which is also an excellent publication. Mm-hmm. Um, this journalist, Jessica Pressier, followed this story and she wrote a major piece. It was then also done in Vanity Fair. It's had lots of coverage and now it's been turned into a nine-part Netflix series, Inventing Anna. Is she a clever businesswoman or a complete con artist? And you'll love this, Caro, because we enter the story via um, oh, that wonderful actress, um, uh, Anna Chlumsky, who I don't know, I've seen her before on a couple of television things, but she plays Vivian, the journalist, based on the real-life journalist, who wants to get this story. Her career's in a bit of a tattered state. She's in the back room at the New York magazine office and she hears about this girl, Anna, and she decides this is a great story. So it's a journalism story as much as anything, going to prison, trying to convince Anna to give the story to her. And then there's all this backstory about how Anna actually arrived on the plane from Germany. Where is she from? Is she really German? Who is she? It's great. You will love it. Can I just also tell potties, if you're hooked onto this as Jane and myself are, there is a new podcast series starting this week called Inventing Anna. And it's actually the backstory of the making of the Netflix drama, because that in itself is an incredible story. Wow. I sometimes find those con artist stories quite upsetting. I mean, I, I listened to that podcast, Who the Hell is Hamish, a couple of years ago, and it's it's devastating when people get sucked in, smart people. But this sounds, okay, this sounds great. And the good thing is they go into gender too, because if you've watched the Tinder swindler, he's living a life scot-free, multi-millions of dollars of rip-offs. Anna's in jail. The difference with how a woman is treated as a scam artist compared to a man is very, very interesting. I find that intriguing. 
Inventing Anna on Netflix, and you say every episode, Corrie, is quite long. Yeah, yeah, it's over, it's over an hour, Jane, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I can't wait to go home and watch the rest. So that's Inventing Anna. Now, Caro, have you been cooking in Yamba? Uh, a little you bit. you have a recipe, don't a you? A lot of eating out, I have to say. Just, you know, some basic, some more upmarket. There are some beautiful restaurants in Yamba. But this is one from my daughter, Clem, and it is absolutely per- and it's perfect at the moment because it involves a lot of tomatoes. And like a lot of great tomato salad recipes, the best way to do it is to in- involve, you know, romas and beef tomatoes and black Russians and little baby yellow ones and serve them, you know, the way you want them. The big ones, you know, thinly sliced, the small ones quartered or halved, etc. But it is a sort of a new take from one of our favourites, Corrie, Danielle Alvarez. She the always yes. had lemon lady. She is the lovely. It's always. from this wonderful book. It's um, it's also um, I, th- I think it appeared in Delicious magazine not long ago. It's sort of a a, a new take on a niçoise or a that chop chop tuna salad, but the two main ingredients are tomatoes and tuna and capers and of course a little bit of fried bread. It is absolutely delicious. Tomato and fried crouton salad with tonato and capers. So you make the tonato first and you serve that at the bottom of the dish. So you basically whiz together um, good quality olive oil packed tin tuna, three anchovy fillets, an egg yolk, olive oil, soy sauce, lemon juice, Worcestershire sauce and thin a little bit of thin cream. Absolutely delicious. Whiz all that together. Once it's all broken up, um, stream in the olive oil, you know, blah, 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 it goes thick. Then you... Um, Add the um, soy sauce and lemon juice and Worcestershire, the remaining olive oil, tiny bit of cream and uh, water to loosen it. And you put that down with drizzles of um, olive oil and a bit of black pepper at the bottom, the base of your plate. And on top, you um, basically fry, dry, or fry in olive oil, the capers, making sure they're as dry as possible. And um, so you let them sizzle a little, then dry them on um, kitchen paper. Tear the bread into rough pieces, add them to the pan with the caper oil and some more olive oil. But you shallow fry them, not so they're really crispy all over. So they're still a bit chewy, but crispy on one side. And basically, tomato on the plate, cut up the tomatoes into thick slices and little quarters, etc. Sprinkle with salt and pepper, scatter the croutons over the top. Finish with fried capers and fresh pick basil leaves. And you don't and you don't cook the little tomatoes. No, at no, all? they're served cold. They it is absolutely. There is nothing delicious. like fish and tomato. Oh, isn't it the perfect combo? And something about the tomato, it is absolutely beautiful. Mm. So anyway, that is my recipe today. Thank you, always add lemon. Thank you, Clem, who has done this with triumph. Tomato and fried crouton salad with tomato and capers. Miss Jane, you have the recipe. And thank you, Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131806. As Ruth Hobson did from the Shady Ladies. Corrie, you are grumpy. Oh, look, I just couldn't go another year without mentioning Donald Trump's name, Caro. (laughs) On the weekend, he gave a 90-minute speech to supporters on Saturday night where he virtually declared his intention to run in 2024 for president. Uh, This is the closest um, the orange-haired baboon has come to saying, "Um, yes, I'm going to be a front-runner. It was a really ghastly speech given that the world is on the precipice of war possibly and what's happening in Ukraine and the loss of lives and everything. He bagged and mocked Joe Biden. He 
bagged and mocked NATO over its sanctions policy. He said Putin would never have invaded on his watch, his being Donald Trump's watch, and he did the old, I understand Vladimir Putin, he understands me, we wouldn't have played these games. It was just hideous. It was. I tried to listen to 10 or 15 minutes of it and I lasted about five in the interest of this podcast. I thought I'd better be fair and have a listen. You know, the guy is just crackers. And what's really sort of alarming, Caro, is that the Republicans, because Donald Trump is the unofficial leader of the Republican Party, it seems, so many Republicans are just staying mum on the topic of what's happening in Ukraine. They're really confused. Many of them, uh, more sensible ones, are pulling their hair out with, with where to go, with confusion, what to do here. Because if you... If you um, have a, take a bipartisan approach and support Joe Biden and the and the American government's policy here. Uh, you will be mocked by Donald Trump, and nobody wants that at the moment because there are too many votes at stake. So it's a very confusing and rather tense time. Yes, and clearly America has no intention of going in and bombing Russia at the moment. I wonder if he's, if he's going to end up really bad comparison with someone like Oswald Mosley, you know, who just diminished and diminished but kept that loyal, passionate, zealot, zealous band of supporters. Well, zealots. you're right about, you're right about zealous. They are really, they are really. And Obviously t- a lot more than Mosley. And also, end, t- and Tucker Carlson, I mean, Tucker Carlson of Fox News, who's kind of like Donald Trump number two, he's the one who's most worrying because he's, Ratings are going through the roof, and um, and he also is has joined in the charge against Joe Biden, NATO, and and what's happening over there. So, watch this space. I reckon America's evolve is American domestic politics is evolving into a very interesting story as well. Now, very legitimate, grumpy Corrie. Now, time for six quick questions for Red Energy, Corrie. What is your favourite new cooking Instagram account? She is the Pasta Queen. Caro, her name is uh, in real life. Hang on, I've just lost her. Here she is, Nadia Caterina Munou, and she is she was born in Rome. She's an Italian. Uh, just think of um, just think of Nigella Lawson with a even more revealing plunging neckline. But um, and I, I don't want to diminish her by saying that because she's a terrific cook, and her Instagram account well, you here. You sort of ha- you have right. <laughs> oh no, she's really gorgeous. I mean, in a, in a love. I mean, I love Nigella, um, but um, I don't want people to just tune in for the eye candy. But she's she's quite theatrical, but she's actually a really good cook. And all of her uh, posts are little recipes that you can follow, little videos, and they some of the recipes are very creamy and uh, very rich. But some of them are absolutely terrific. And um, it's the underscore pasta queen. And in a funny kind of way, when I watch her with her vivacity, her character and her cooking skill and just an amazing communication skill, I think of your daughter, Clem, and Clemmy Donahue, the um, Instagram account. There's a, there, this is what Clem could be if she really wanted to. Uh, 1.3 million followers of the Pastor Queen. So it's called the Pastor Queen. The underscore Pastor Queen. Good title. Good name to have. Nadia Minot. Now, Caro, what's your GLT for this week? Corrie, the other day I managed to get Biro on one of my favourite wind cheaters. Biro, actually, not not a exploded sort of Biro in the bag. Just a little Biro thing. mark. Well, lots of Biro marks. Like, what were you doing? Drawing I, your bosoms? I, I don't know. You're doing a range of chest area. <laughs> Who knew? That all I'm that. Sorry, could just what? We, how did you get Biro? I looked at my wind cheater. Had Biro. I, I was obviously. 
sitting down doing a crossword. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know is the answer. Anyway, it's one of my favourite. <laughs> doing crossword sitting on her it was, chest. <laughs> no, the pen I'll kill. Oh, look, anyway, did you know, I mean, this is one of those great tips because it involves using something that we all have far too much of. And what do we all have far too much Wine. of? Hand sanitizer. It's everywhere. Remember, we couldn't get enough, and now it's everywhere, and we don't use it anymore. Really, let's be honest, or not that often. I do. I still have some in my car. Rub hands. Yeah, but far too much. I bet. Rub hand sanitizer on the stain, and leave it for I don't know half an hour. I left it for probably half an hour, and then I soaked it for another couple of hours. It all comes out. Hand what sanitizer. Made you, what made you go to hand sanitizer? I googled how do you get viral. Biro out of windsheeters, uh, biro out of clothes, and there's about a thousand different ways to do it. But this was something that seemed a bit easy and was worth a try. Not a trace of biro left. Can I? Well, while you're in your Martha Martha Gardner mode, can I ask you um, a question? Uh, playing golf the other day, we were talking about how sweat marks for women. I know women aren't supposed to perspire, but we do. We do. They glow, in fact. Yeah, we sweat. So how do you get rid of sweat marks on the collar of golf shirts or on your, on, indeed on your golf hat? Just spray them with ah, a bit of doesn't come sard out. wonder no, spray. Sard do, it doesn't work. Well, try hand sanitizer. It works for biros <laughs> and that would be a much worse stain. Anyway, I thought that was pretty impressive. Good tip. I like that tip. Corrie, what gave you a spring in your step this week? Caro, the fact that 30 people decided they wanted to know how to write. So this new invention of mine, this How to Write series, yes. 10 authors talk, and in fact you're going to be one of them in a few weeks, a webinar series. We had 30 people that locked on to this, which may not seem big and a lot of people, but for me it was a victory because it means I can pay my authors for participating, which is important. <laughs> <That's> good news. <laughs> One less thing. It's, impo it's important <laughs> to pay Australian writers. Um, those who don't have media deals like you, Caro, they really need it. Oh, um, <laughs> your first author was Jocks Are Wrong. I'm not too worried about him. He's one of the most successful but, authors we have. But I. But also it means that we can pay webinar people. It means that I have a financially viable idea, which is really what it's all about. And the most wonderful thing is that first, the first one was just joyful. We love Jock, I know, but he's actually a really great communicator of the message about how he writes fiction and nonfiction. So it's a great series. If anybody wants to know more about it, get on the Instagram account, Corey is reading. But it's not a plug for the business. It's just real. Well, I suppose it is. But it was really just to be so uh, so convinced that people are really keen to learn how to communicate the message in a clear no, well, you way. You didn't exactly have a massive advertising campaign either, so that's terrific. Yeah, so wait till wait till you're on. We'll probably have hundreds oh, of messages. Hard to follow after Jock. <laughs> I won't be able to tell people how to write a novel. Now, um, what gave you a spring in your step this week? Oh, the return of Dusty. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Come on, how good did he look against you long the other day? He... Yeah, Dustin Martin, you know, was in hospital for many, many weeks with that devastating kidney injury. Yes, true. Everybody thought this might be the end of his career. And it was it was a very, very serious injury to a vital organ. And he's back and he looked as sharp as ever. And a lot of people had a spring in their step after seeing Dusty. Corrie, what ad had you crying this week? Uh, I saw it over the weekend, the latest Optus ad, Caro, which is... Uh, the violinist player Eric Avery 
and he is he plays working class man throughout and it's the story it's a beautiful setup of uh, a chap that works it looks like a foundry and in his lunch hour he's outside playing the violin and one of his workmates uh, says play us a tune and it's beautiful and he the the friend um, videos it puts it on YouTube the thing goes viral and at the end of the ad he is asked whether he would like to audition with a symphony orchestra and his partner or wife says to him you know you should go for this and it's all about opportunity and the fact that it's um, tied into Optus the campaign is really quite interesting I think it's really clever it's about achieving your goals and dreams and having the courage to do it well done Optus I was in floods of tears oh, sounds like you've been you were in a bit of an emotional sort of... Were you feeling emotional at the time? Is it that good an ad? I haven't seen it. Cara, I'd been watching CNN for 12 hours straight. Oh God, I'd, been in, on the, I'd been in the battlefields of Kiev. It's <laughs> been a big weekend. Um, what's your amazing fact this week, Caro? Well, amazing is probably overstating it, but I've, I've found it very interesting to read the cautionary words from veterinarians over Australia warning people this week, dog owners particularly, about the separation anxiety that dogs are going to have as their owners go back to work. So a lot of people are going back to work this week. Um, a lot of people are doing a 3-2 model, a 2-3 model, a 1-4 model, a 40% model. I mean, you know, as Craig Kelly once said, you know, the footballer, entrepreneur, what's <laughs> any chance anyone's getting any work done these days? I know it's important. Working from home is a great thing. We can all get a lot more done, but there is something very special about the workplace. But a lot of people haven't been into their offices for two years. And, and a lot of people bought puppies, as we know. Yes. Remember, puppy prices went and through the roof. Dogs are going to, dogs have benefited from this and they've had all this wonderful company of their owners. That's going to end for a lot of dogs this week. So everybody keep an eye out for their beautiful pets. And obviously everyone will be cognizant of this and what a worry this can be for dogs who've been so used to having their owners. So what can we do? Have you done any research for this well, amazing fact? Well, vet, well, vets are just saying that make sure you do it, um, oh, there's various things, make sure you do it in um, gradual increments, which is obvious, a bit like sending a child, I guess, into daycare. Um, make sure that when you do come home and when you leave, don't make a really big deal of it. That's a very important. Yeah, which a lot of people are guilty of. You know, I saw Queenie for the first time last night in eight days and, you know, she bounded in and I was so excited to see her. But I didn't want to make a real fuss of her for the first 10 minutes because they need to not think that you coming and going is the major event. They need to get some normality into the absence. Mm, good tip. But anyone who owns a dog knows what to do. I would but also I just say a little stuffed toy. It's worked wonders with Panda. Let's think about the dogs of Australia today, Corrie. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye for another week. Oh, I was having such a great chat. It okay, was it time was, to go. It's lovely to see you again. And thank you, obviously. Lovely to see you, Miss Jane, and your beautiful roses. Yeah, you're nailing the gardening, Janie. I know. I come in here every week quite excited now. Thank you to our podcast supporters, Red Energy. Please call Red Energy if you're interested. You won't be disappointed on 131806. And to Prince Wine Store, princewinestore.com.au. Check out their Instagram, Prince Wine Store. You can contact us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, get the recipes, get all the other great tips, hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes and send or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. The email is, of course, 
feedback feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and keep your modern day dilemmas coming to dear Caro and Corrie. Corrie, don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world.